0: And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Usri, and I'm happy to welcome Sonia Purnell to the program today. Sonia is a journalist and nonfiction author. Her books include Just Boris, A Tale of Blonde Ambition, Clementine, The Life of Mrs. Winston Churchill, and today we'll be talking about her most recent title, A Woman of No Importance, The Untold Story of the American Spy Who Helped Win World War II, which is now in paperback from Penguin. Sonia, how did you first come across the story of Virginia Hall?
1: Well, my last book was about Clementine Churchill, Winston Churchill's wife. And writing about her and realising just what an enormous role she'd played in the Second World War made me think, well, there must be other stories out there of people we know so little about, but who did their thing and, and made a big impact. I was always interested in spies. My dad was in counterintelligence for a short time. I started looking into some stories of World War II spies. And then every now and again, this this name came up, Virginia Hall, an American woman. She had a wooden leg. She did amazing things. And yet it seemed to me that her story just hadn't been told. We knew bits, but we didn't know all about her. Most people knew nothing about her at all. So I started digging around. I discovered that this wasn't just a good story. It was a great story, an epic story an inspiration. And it was much better than I could possibly have hoped for.
0: And in your acknowledgements, you say it's such an epic story that Hollywood might become involved in all of this.
1: Well, that's right. So J.J. J. Abrams and Bad Robot, who make Star Wars movies and Star Trek and a whole bunch of other things, they've bought the rights. was well, going to be Paramount studio. I'm not sure which studio it's going to be now because they're kind of changing things, but they are supposedly right now writing the script, which is obviously very, very exciting. But I'm um, realistic about these things. I don't know how long it will take or whatever, but the, the idea is in there and it's being worked on.
0: Ms. Hall is from the Baltimore area? That's right. And her mother did not have aspirations for her daughter becoming a secret agent.
1: Oh, my goodness. No, she certainly didn't. Mrs. Barbara Hall, Virginia's mother, was a secretary who'd married her father, Ned. Now, she was a, a socially ambitious woman, and she really wanted the Hall family to retain the social heights they had once had. And she wanted Virginia to marry well, basically to marry money to stay at home, to run a fashionable household. But Virginia was never going to be like that. Virginia was this free spirit, adventurous soul. She was a tomboy and she had this idea from an early age, which her father, Ned, rather indulged, which was that she wanted to be an ambassador and travel the world and meet interesting people, as she put it. I mean, the problem was, though, of course, that in those days, and we're talking about the 1920s when she reached adulthood, There were no female American ambassadors, so this was a rather sort of revolutionary idea and one that she, in the end, found it impossible to achieve.
0: With her mother, she had a dynamic that seemed to play with her superiors in uh, the espionage world later on. She was loyal and loving, but also very rebellious and independent.
1: If you look at a picture of Virginia in those war years, you look at her face, you can see that this was a very, very determined woman who had her own ideas and would stick to them. So she was sometimes difficult to work with, sometimes difficult to work for. But she was someone who was unbelievably resourceful, someone who was unbelievably resilient, had great ideas, and was fearless. I mean, totally fearless. And in the end, ingenious. I mean, she came up with all sorts of plans to get agents out of jail to recapture whole parts of France. Her skill set was extraordinary. But you know, people like that are rarely easy to be with. And I think probably at times, Virginia was quite difficult, quite prickly sometimes.
0: And despite this high level of cleverness, she did not excel in university studies.
1: No, she didn't. Uh, Well, she did here and there. I mean, she did in Paris. She studied at seven different universities in Europe and in the US. She picked up five languages. She became extremely knowledgeable about European politics and the rise of nationalism and extremism. But she wasn't someone who took well to sitting neatly in class and paying attention all the time. I think her real forte was the university of life. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but that's where she really learned what she wanted to find out.
0: And so how did she find her way into the Foreign Service?
1: Well, the the US Foreign Service, ultimately, she she took the examination, the entrance examination for the diplomatic service, and she scored 100% in her oral exam. We know that. We're not quite sure what she scored in her written exam, but we think she did pretty well. But she was turned down The rejection was quick and brutal, and there were 1,500 diplomats at the time in the U.S., and only six were women, and that wasn't going to include Virginia. So rather than just give up, she said, okay, well, I'll go into the State Department as a secretary then, and so that's what she did.
0: And then some family friends interceded on her behalf, and that did not endear her to the Cordell Hall.
1: Well, no, it didn't, you see. But in the meantime, what had happened was this extraordinary event in her life that might have brought the end to her life, but didn't made made her the great agent that she became and she was on a posting to Turkey. She was out hunting with her friends with the gun that her father had given her and they were in the Geddes Delta Marshes and they were trying to shoot Snipe and she was very competitive. She was probably trying to hit the bird first before anybody else did and she perhaps wasn't looking where she was going and she tripped over a wire fence and, and fell and grabbed her gun as she fell, and she hadn't engaged the safety catch. And so she literally shot herself in the foot. Now, she lost consciousness, her friend scooped her up, they took her to the hospital, it looked like she was doing okay. But then a couple of weeks later, it was clear that she had gangrene. And she was on the point of death, the only way they had possibly got a chance of saving her was by cutting off her leg below the knee, her left leg. So, You now have this young free spirit who considered that she might just be relegated to sort of sitting in a corner and not really having a full life anymore, being disabled then was infinitely less sort of full of opportunity as it it is now. But she insisted on going back to the State Department, went back as a secretary, went to work in Venice and then took the examination again, passed again. Everyone thought, well, that's it, because she had a glowing reference from her superiors in, in Venice but then Cordell Hull said, "No, we're not going to accept an amputee into the diplomatic service." And and you're right; she appealed, and she got family friends to appeal too. The, the letters went right up to FDR in the Oval Office, but he decided not to intervene. Cordell Hull advised him against it, and and actually Virginia was was punished for this, and she was. Um, posted uh, against her will to Estonia, to Tallinn, and, and given a job which was really way, way below what she was capable of. and And so as a result, coming into 1939, as the world is spinning towards war, she resigns from the State Department for good. I mean, it's clear she's never going to get anywhere.
0: But as someone who's had this major loss, it didn't subtract from her life. It only concentrated her resolve and desire.
1: Oh, yes, that's so true. I mean, when she was in Venice, so she had this prosthetic leg, which she called Cuthbert, by the way, and it was wooden and it was very primitive compared with what you see now. She couldn't flex or bend her ankle. It was very difficult to go up or down. And and yet she was in Venice with all of those bridges. You imagine all those bridges going over canals. There are 400 of them. Her job was to get about town to go to meetings. She was working for the consulate. And then Virginia just had this idea, okay, I'm going to get my own gondola. So I'm going to get about town on a gondola instead. And, and that's exactly what she did. So she made all those meetings and she stood in for her diplomatic bosses when they were away or busy. And so she really triumphed. I mean, people thought that this is a woman who won't let this terrible accident hold her back. Her entire career during the war is really an epic tale of resilience and determination and courage. And she did things that 99% of able bodied people couldn't do with people who'd never had an accident like she had. But she did it with this primitive prosthetic leg. It is an epic tale for that reason.
0: It seems as almost if she weren't being challenged, she wasn't actually living.
1: I think there is something in that. I think there are two things. I think one of the drivers was that she had to prove to herself. I can still do things. There was a reason why I was saved because no one thought she was going to survive. But there was a reason why I did survive. But she also had to prove to the world, I am a woman, I can do these things that most men, 99.9% of men can do. And certainly people who've had an accident like mine. So she became an agent, that self-reliance, that independence, that sort of sixth sense that she had developed as a result of her accident meant that she became the absolute creme de la creme of secret agents. She seemed to have a sixth sense about who she could trust. She had this force of character, this charisma that people signed up and followed her. Even though they didn't really know who she was, even though they thought the cause was desperate, somehow she managed to persuade them, yeah, come on, sign up with the resistance. Let's organise. Let's get ready. The Brits will come back because, you know, the French were told that the Brits had capitulated, that Churchill had deserted them, that nothing was ever going to rescue them ever again. But Virginia managed to persuade them that the Brits and hopefully the Americans one day will come back. And now we need to get organized. We must keep that flame of resistance alive. And she was absolutely brilliant at this.
0: But without the backing of the State Department behind her. How did she get to France?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, she's now left the State Department and been through this one in a billion chance. Well, first of all, she drove ambulances for the French army on the front line when Germany invaded in in 1940, driving the ambulance under machine gun fire and aerial bombardment. Extraordinary. I mean, she just kept going, picking up the wounded from the battlefields, taking them to hospital. When France capitulated, she didn't just go home to Baltimore, as her mother would have liked. She went to Britain and volunteered her services there. But on the way, one of these sliding doors moments of history, she travelled through lawless France, now under the heel of the Third Reich and the Nazis, to try to get to Britain. You can't just cross the Channel anymore, obviously. You have to go back down all the way to Spain and catch a boat from Portugal. On her way through this very perilous and gruelling journey, She crosses into Spain and meets, like I say, this one-in-a-billion-chance encounter with an undercover British agent called George Bellows, if indeed that's his real name. They got into conversation. He was trying to collect intelligence about what was going in France. Britain had no agents left in France. They'd all been killed or compromised or fled. So France was like North Korea is to us now. People didn't know what was going on. And he was just asking her questions. And he realises that... This woman is a one-off. Not only did she have extraordinary amounts of intelligence that she had gleaned from just watching things in France, but she seemed to be fearless and she wanted to go back in. So he gave her a piece of paper. He said, here's a phone number of a friend of mine in London. Give him a call when you get there. And so she did. But it wasn't a friend. It was the second in command of the French section of Special Operations Executive, which was this new secret service that Churchill had set up to set Europe ablaze, as he put it. Really, it was a kind of mixture of James Bond and Sinn Féin. It was not only spying, but subversion and sabotage. And it was all a great idea and very inventive. The problem had been that after six months of trying... They hadn't managed to infiltrate one single person into France. And then now Virginia Hall, a disabled American woman with no military background, turns up, phones the phone number, comes in to dinner and says, I want to go into France and I want to go in as an American journalist. And they they realize the cover is right there. So they help us set up the cover. She goes in in September nineteen. 19- 41, well ahead of Pearl Harbor, obviously, and becomes one of their very first agents in, in France, the only allied woman agent they have in France. And from a background of very little training, no contact, no backup if things go wrong, a 50-50 chance of surviving the first few days in their own calculations. She helps to set up this enormous network of resistance cells right across France. She is brilliant at this stuff no one expects it and she proves all her critics and her doubters wrong
0: even in england and britain soe is not universally accepted inside the government there are quite a few people who have their reservations about
1: this well some people uh, thought it was a sort of gangster outfit you know how can you go and do this and break all the rules there would be no rank there'd be no uniforms there were no rule book as such and there was a lot of turf wars in Whitehall in the British government as to whether or not SOE should really be allowed to thrive or whether the old intelligence agencies like MI6 would try and kill it off. So all of that is going in the background. There's also a rule from the cabinet that no women should be sent into enemy territory. Well, that rule book is torn up for a start. And there is Virginia going in, as I say, with very little training. And one of the few things she had one of the only things she shared with jane's bomb really was she had a license to kill she was given these l pills which were little kind of soluble brown pills that you could put in the back of your mouth if you didn't chew them if you just swallowed them they didn't do anything to you but if you chewed them or you broke them and put them in someone else's meal then they would kill you in 45 seconds and we know that that was her preferred way of killing we think she probably did kill you not the sort of thing that you write down but she certainly had a license to kill and when you think that she'd been a basically untrained desk clerk and she was suddenly really at one point holding the entire allied intelligence operation together in france you can see you know this was an epic undertaking the fact that she was capable of it is just extraordinary
0: and she had had recent experience in concealing her prosthetic leg and that many people did not know she even had a prosthetic leg. That's how good she was at concealing this type of information and portraying an identity other than her own to the world.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. You see, I think this is another way in which her accident, you know—you might say perversely, but certainly made her a great agent. It had made her slightly distant from other people because other people couldn't obviously understand what she had gone through. So she didn't need to lie on other people as much as, as most of us would. But also, like you say, that disguise. She took hugely long strides to try and disguise the fact that she had this limp. And she wore thick stockings over the leg, even in the hottest weather, to try and disguise. It was made out of painted wood, that's all it was. She called it Cuthbert. I mean, Cuthbert was really incredibly primitive and from there on she worked on other disguises too and on her first mission they were quite simple ones she might be three or four different people during the day, just to, you know, protect her own security. So she might put little rubber slithers in her cheeks to change the shape of her face or change the parting in her hair, wear glasses, wear hat, wear gloves, different clothes, different makeup. So she might be Brigitte, Marie or Philomene in one day, depending on who she was talking to or meeting. And then later on in her second mission, she wanted one big step further in her disguise. But I guess we'll come on to that.
0: Marie was one of her major code names that she had. How difficult was it in the research phase with all these code names to keep the story straight for yourself as you're chasing all these leads?
1: Well, I can tell you, it took me three years to put this story together and a lot of research. And part of the problem was that she did have so many code names. I mean, I've mentioned just a few, but she probably had at least 20. And, you know, secret agents don't keep journals or diaries, and things aren't documented in the way that one might like as a biographer. But in the end, I I had this big map on my wall at home of France, and I had sort of stickers and bits of string. And I, you know, matched up her code names with different missions and dates. And I worked out that all these different people were actually Virginia. And what she was able to do in so many different parts of France, you know, it's just sort of beggar's belief I mean, getting about France in wartime was hard enough and she seemed to be able to command most of France, you know, it was extraordinary.
0: As an American, she had a little bit more leeway than even the French did. America was not in the war yet, so she uses a cover as a reporter for the New York Post to get around.
1: Well, that's right, and it, all, it gives her cover for asking, you know, nosy questions, if you like, and, and making contacts in in the French government, which which she did. She did indeed write articles for the New York Post, and, and initially, there was no other way of communicating with London other than writing those articles, the New York Post, that contained. Coded messages they couldn 't get hold of her at all. There were no radio operators that she could work with at that point and in the end she quite quickly she um, recruited people in the American consulate in, in Lyon, sympathizers who helped her smuggle messages over the Swiss border to the British ambassador in Switzerland and then back to London. and you can imagine that took quite a long time so She was on her own. She had no contacts when she got out there, no means of communication, basically no training. She had to make it up as she went along.
0: It was fascinating to see that even her simple reportage of what items were under ration could be leveraged to help gather assets for the cause.
1: Well, that's right. These little minute details meant everything. I mean, one of the details, for instance, that was vital to know was that because of rationing, at this time, bars and cafes were allowed to sell alcoholic beverages only one in two days. So every other day, they weren't allowed to sell alcoholic beverages. So if you turned up and ordered a a glass of wine, let's say in a cafe on the day that they weren't selling alcohol then you immediately are conspicuous. Why didn't you know that they weren't selling alcohol? That, that little mistake could cost you your life. So she was writing all these articles for the New York Post containing this information so that London would know and be able to brief their agents when they next went out.
0: Why were pianists so valuable?
1: Ah, now, penis was the nickname that was given to radio operators. And after a while, more did come out. I mean, they were vital, really. Penis, I guess, because you're, you're sort of tapping on a key all the time to send your message. And, and the way that you do that, whether it's soft or hard, people could often tell who it was who was sending the message. But that's the only real-time way of getting information back to London and receiving orders. Now, the problem was that these messages could be intercepted by the Germans. And indeed, they developed an increasingly effective way of triangulation system of pinpointing the location of the wireless transmitter. So a lot of those radio operators who came out were caught they found them and they were caught red-handed at their set. And London was desperately trying to send more in, send more in, because otherwise, you know, the the agents in France were completely isolated. And what they could do was therefore strictly curtail, because unless they could get messages back to London to organise things or to send information, you know, it really wasn't effective so it was always about protecting radio operators getting more in finding them wireless sets that actually work something they were very easy to break and just somehow trying to prolong their life for as long as possible
0: it was fascinating to see how the technology changed over the course of a few years, how they made those radio sets smaller and smaller so they were more and more portable. It was fascinating to see how the pressures made them advance the technology. So, quickly.
1: Yeah, because they were so heavy to begin with, you know, like a big old-fashioned suitcase. Also, another thing that made you conspicuous, it was obvious that the suitcase was very heavy, 40 pounds or more. What was in that suitcase? And so they might be stopped by Vichy police or the Gestapo. Obviously, as soon as they opened it, those people – had no chance whatsoever. So radio sets got smaller and lighter as quickly as as possible, because that was one way that was completely necessary to try and protect the operators.
0: Now, in Britain, I know the license fee for BBC services exists. Do they have squads that go out and try to detect people who are listening without license fees?
1: they do. They still use that triangulation system even now to find people who are watching TV and and not paying their license, which is actually a criminal offense in in Britain. So that's how the BBC is is funded. It's about £150. They get about $200 a year So, yeah, that technology is still in use today as well.
0: Virginia Hall has so many challenges to her while she is behind enemy lines in France. Fear of detection, of course, the rationing, no one is eating as much as they need to eat. But she has one huge obstacle overcome, and that's the fragile male ego.
1: Yes, uh, yeah, how very true. They're sending other agents out, some of them are French, some of them are British, she's uh, one of very, very few Americans. Remember, still America isn't in the war yet. And some of these guys, they're really quite excited, let's say, about being a secret agent. And and they think it's an excuse to go around and, you know, sort of seduce lots of women who are rather excited by the idea. I mean, they were going around boasting about being secret agents and, and boasting that they'd recruited lots of people.
0: Kind of takes the secret out of the equation. Well, it
1: does. You hit the nail on the head. That was the problem. They simply didn't understand or care enough about security. I think maybe in those early days, a lot of them thought it was a bit of a game. Of course, it wasn't, it was a deadly game. But the sort of the thinking of London, though, was that surely this disabled woman couldn't command whole areas of France. It should be one of these guys who went out. And so often they they repeatedly refused to listen to the evidence that Virginia was actually de facto in command and and give formal command to these guys who were simply not doing the job. One was codenamed Alain, for example. He was hanging out with all sorts of women who were collaborators, known collaborators, just doing really, really silly things and and claiming he had 10,000 followers when he probably had more like Three. I mean, I don't mean 3,000, I mean three. So that was difficult and, and she had a lot of pushback. You know, France was a very conservative country too. Women were expected to stay at home and just bear children. So this foreign woman going in and trying to take command, the only way she made it work is by that charisma, by that sheer force of personality. And she did make it work.
0: For most of her adult life, she did not allow herself to have romantic entanglements. There was a young Polish army officer when she was younger, but she knew to survive was to be on your own.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, she absolutely did know that. And Emile had been many years before the war, and she knew you had to be utterly self-reliant. There was one story that came out about not Virginia, but another agent who was struggling with that. It's so lonely and used to have her dinner in front of a mirror because the reflection was the only person that she could trust. And, and that's what it's like. And I think, you know, take a moment and imagine what it's like not to be able to trust anybody, not even those on your own side and same side as you, because if they know too much about you and they're caught and they're tortured, how do you know that they won't just out of desperation spill everything that they know about you. So you can't reveal too much of yourself to anyone. And that's very, very hard. It goes against the human spirit.
0: And she was so adamant about this operational security, the OPSEC, that she would keep the cells small and independent from each other so that they could not betray each other. And a land bristled at not being in control of everything.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, of course, she was right. That was the only way to maintain security, was making sure that no one knew too much about other people, that the cells were small, highly disciplined, that you never went – if you had a meeting in a cafe, you never just walked into the cafe. You always walked around the block first, kept it under observation before – you went in, you never used your own name, you used a series of different code names, you changed your address frequently, you changed the way you looked frequently, you never gave of yourself, you never said where you were from or even which organization you were working for. And that kind of secrecy, most people find very, very difficult. But again, I think, you know, her accident helped her because you know when she'd been working at the state department she had tried to keep her injury secret from people she had tried not to let them realize that she was a disabled woman so I, i think it came more naturally to her
0: at the beginning of her operation france is a divided country there is the occupied zone where the nazi germans are and then there's the free zone which is the vichy government who are sympathetic toward the nazis
1: exactly so in fact the free zone was nothing of the sort um It wasn't formal control by the Germans, but it it was pretty much the same.
0: And it seemed that some in the U.S. delegation were a little bit more sympathetic toward the Vichy regime than they should have been.
1: Well, yeah. I mean there have long been criticisms of the then American ambassador, Admiral Leahy, that he was too close to the Vichy administration. And certainly Virginia made sure she kept out of his eyeline. She didn't want him to know what she was up to, although I think he pretty much guessed or had his suspicions. But there were other people who were working in the embassy and in the American consulates who went out of their way to help Virginia, even from those early stages. I mean, things obviously changed once Pearl Harbor had happened, but her early months were there were pre-Pearl Harbor.
0: Back in England at Baker Street, where SOE is headquartered, she gets a new boss, Morris Buckmaster. What was her working relationship with Buckmaster like?
1: I mean, he came in after she had already gone out into the field, so she wouldn't have met him for a while. But of course, they knew each other through her reports back home. Once she had that system of sending messages, over the border into Switzerland. She was in communication with Buckmaster. He was an old fashioned British gent. I think he too found it pretty hard to imagine that it was the right thing to do to give her command. He certainly took an awful lot of persuading in a very long time and made lots of mistakes in, in giving command to Alain. But you know, after a while, I think he really realised that he had an absolute superstar on his hands, a, a hero. And he had this nickname for her doodles. I found one letter to her at a later point when she's out of the field for a bit, you know, dearest doodles. And, And I think he was very fond of her, rather in awe of her, but incredibly pleased that SOE had seen past the disability and seen that she had these talents that were unbelievably rare, if not unique.
0: And while her gender delayed her entry into action in France, it ended up working to her advantage at least early on because the Germans had their own paternalistic views that made them overlook her.
1: Yeah, I mean, they did early on anyway, when the Germans couldn't believe that women would get involved in anything quite as dirty as the resistance. And so I'm sure early on, Germans and the Vichy police as well, that protected her. But then they discovered that actually that wasn't the case, that women were playing an enormous role in the resistance, really rather unsung. Now, they were often couriers of messages of explosives and guns. There's one story of a, a woman loading down her baby's pram with so many firearms that the thing almost collapsed. And obviously, if they were stopped at any patrol, they would be tortured and most likely killed. And the Nazis and the Vichy police kept probably the most brutal and barbaric methods of torture for women. And so after they began realising that women were playing their part, there was no protection for women. If anything, it was more dangerous for women, not least because they were not recognised as combatants, i.e. they weren't protected by the Geneva Convention on Human Rights. And so there was nothing to stop the barbarity.
0: If you can judge a person by their enemies, having Klaus Barbie obsessed with tracking you down, speaks well of her.
1: Ah, the Butcher of Lyon. Yeah, so he said he'd give anything to get his hands on her. He was obsessed by her because the Germans began to realize that there was someone in Lyon. It worked out eventually it was a woman, not a man, to their surprise. The limping lady, they began to call her, and they realized that she was playing an absolute blinder, that she had all these networks, that she recruited so many people in powerful positions, that she was beginning a small-scale sabotage campaign. And she was sending back incredible intelligence, very high level intelligence. And on top of that, she'd become a jailbreak ace. So as other agents got caught, 12 of them in one go at one point, she organized and came up with these ingenious ways of getting them out of prison. One of the, um, the secret documents I saw in, in the National Archives in Britain, on what she did, used the word stupefaction. They simply could not believe that she was as good as she was, that she got all these people out of jail, that she got all this intelligence as she set up these networks. It was beyond imagination almost.
0: You write in the book that a very long term in this enemy theater is six months, and she spent years living yeah. this life.
1: Again, it sort of defies All reason. I mean, some people thought she must even have contacts within the Gestapo. She always seemed to know what the Gestapo were about to do, where they were about to raid, who they suspected, who they knew about. She seemed to be able to stay just one step ahead of all of these people pursuing her. Klaus Barbie, more than any other. It is really almost unbelievable how she managed to stay at liberty. And I would put it down to two things. A, that she never revealed too much of herself to anyone. She had all these contacts who protected her, certainly. But her field craft was, was very good. The, the disguises, the being careful, the not letting her guard slip. I think combination of that kept her safe for a long time. But then her sixth sense about people and who she could trust and who she couldn't kind of failed her. She had her doubts, but there was this priest, one of the most evil double agents of the Second World War, and yet so little known, Robert Olesch, he started to infiltrate her network. And although London kept saying she ought to come back, she'd been in the field too long, she kept saying, no, I, I need more time here, I've got more to do. But then he was about to pounce with the Gestapo and the Abwehr, and she knew she had to get out now.
0: And he didn't even seem to be driven by ideology, just pure venality.
1: Oh, yeah. It was money. He made millions and millions and millions of francs by selling people to the Nazis. He had a vast apartment in Paris. He ensconced two mistresses in it. He was making he so was much priest. money. He was a priest. Yeah. He was a French well, he had a French... Alsatian. Yeah, he you know. was hes actually from Luxembourg initially, but he, he you know been in France for a long time. He had a slight German accent, which was one of the things that worried Virginia about him. But he knew all the code words. He knew all the things that he should know, and he was recommended by people, and he was a priest. And so though she had these doubts, she did take the intelligence from him that he arrived with and, and gave him money, but the problem was he was a double agent.
0: Now, I think we should probably leave it there for the listeners to find out more about this incredible life she's led and everything that comes after is so incredible as well. But one of the things I'd like to double back on quickly is that there's a truism in in military and fighting of wars that you always fight the next war with the tactics of the previous war, and usually that puts nations at a disadvantage. But it seemed that Britain's horrible treatment of the Irish had informed the way they could then – Subvert in France.
1: Well, yes. I mean, the way that Sinn Fein, although it's not exactly they they learn from their enemies. They learn from their enemies, and and they're quite open about that. If you read the documents, they're quite open about you know how did the Irish do this? I mean, it is slightly different, obviously, because the Irish were doing this at home. So Sinn Fein is obviously Irish. It was a homegrown resistance, or whatever you want it is to call it, insurgency. Mm -hmm. Yes, to to the occupiers in France. It was a foreign national, Virginia going in to a country occupied by another power. So it's different, but they were clearly influenced by some of the techniques used by Sinn Féin and the Irish sort of Republicans. And and what they particularly could see was that the desire of just a few resolute people to stand up to the occupiers, whoever they are, could actually turn the tide of a public opinion over time, as happened in Ireland. And as Virginia was able to do in France.
0: There is one extremely interesting and horrific thing in reading this book, and it is to see how lies are used by those in power during the lead up to World War II and during World War II has an effect on their countries. And in my opinion, we see that happening now across Europe and in America.
1: Yes. I mean, this is one of the the lessons that I think is really necessary to learn from Virginia's experience and many others in the Second World War. What she saw was repeated lies. Even when people might be able to see the truth with their own eyes, if you repeat a lie often enough... Sometimes the lie overtakes the truth. Let me give you an example. So when she arrived, and I said that, you know, a lot of the French were cowed. They didn't want to join the resistance. The resistance didn't just jump into being as soon as France capitulated. It took a long, hard slog, and she was there to light the flames of the resistance to try and make it happen. And one of the reasons that people didn't want to get involved, they just wanted to make sure that they had enough food for their kids or just to survive somehow, but they'd been told repeatedly by the Vichy government and Nazi Germany that Churchill had deceived them and deserted them at Dunkirk. It wasn't a strategic withdrawal, it was a deliberate desertion, and that Britain had in any way in any case surrendered and would never come back to help France. Would either Britain nor America would never ever come back. And this was the line pumped out repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. I mean, those brave souls who listened to the BBC knew otherwise. But the problem was, like I say, if a lie is repeated often enough, it often sort of supplants the truth in people's minds. And that's what happened here. And it is something, obviously, that's very frightening because one sees it happening again now.
0: As an author who has written about Boris Johnson, we're in the the run-up to a possible brexit without agreement, what are your your views on his personality and how that has contributed to the situation
1: well, i mean it's interesting you asked this question after the the question about lying because one of the things that boris johnson is is infamous for, even amongst many of those who support him, is having a casual relationship with the truth, shall we say so he has said repeatedly, or used to say repeatedly, that Brexit would be good for Britain. Well, now people see, well, actually, it means, particularly if you don't have a deal, it means 10% off GDP, quite apart from the cultural, social, or emotional aspects of it. It's difficult to argue against that now. So, But this whole idea that it's good for Britain it has been repeated so often that it's now come into people's brains, and, and it's they can't see it anymore if you say, well, actually, but You might lose your job and your kids might not be able to get jobs because those lies were so frequent and and so ubiquitous that that message of the truth isn't getting through. And and I would say that Boris Johnson is very largely responsible for that. I mean, he, he is one of the best salesmen you will ever see on this planet this century, I suspect. But what he was selling was a lie.
0: And it seems that bluster and guile will defeat the truth
1: if we let it. We Well, therefore, we mustn't let it. I mean, Virginia kept fighting for the truth. When she was studying in Europe and she saw the rise of nationalism and extremism and the, and how truth was was slowly eroding, that was when she wanted to be an ambassador more than ever. And when she couldn't, she then went and fought for the truth in another way. I think we have to take a leaf out of a book and, from Virginia and think, well, we can't let that happen. All of us, it's beholden and all of us, we can perhaps only play a very small part, but we should still play it.
0: You're in the midst of a book tour, and it almost seems unfair to ask this, but do you have another subject for <laughs> a, another book?
1: Well, you know, after Virginia Hall, I have to say I'm finding it quite difficult to find a story as yet that is as powerful emotionally and in so many other ways as, as Virginia Hall. I, I think she is a one-off. I mean, I have a couple of ideas for other people but i'm not sure i'll ever be as in awe of one of my subjects again as i am of virginia hall she is an inspiration to me every day my friends say so too the way that she kept going her resilience her resistance her ingenuity you know she was difficult she could be bad tempered she had faults like the rest of us of course but she is an inspiration, and that's quite a hard thing to find. So I haven't as yet found anyone who quite matches up to her, I have to say.
0: But do you think these mentions of that she could be difficult and everything would ever be mentioned if it were about a man we were talking
1: <laughs> Well, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, you know, people use that word bossy about women, don't they? But no one ever s- talks about a man being bossy. And But let me tell you, though, one thing about Virginia Hall. So when she was fighting in a particular part of France, later on in the war, she became a guerrilla leader and she was fighting there. And it was hard. And she had to be quite imperious, was one of the words used, because she had no military rank. She was a foreign woman turning up, trying to command four or 500 men to blow up bridges or whatever she needed to have done. And yet there was a charisma and a charm about her that seems to one over the vast majority of them. And I read a lot of their letters that they wrote to each other after the war and two or three of them said the similar thing, which was it had been worth being born just to have met Virginia Hall, let alone fight alongside her. So I think they accepted she could be imperious, she could be difficult, but that she had to be, but that ultimately... She was a great person and a great person to have fought for and
0: fought with. There seems to be a level of competence someone has, and if they have a preternatural level of competence, Mm. that it is so attractive and magnetic that this person knows what to do and gets the job done.
1: I think that's it. I think she did know what she needed to do. She knew how to get it done. She did have self-assurance in bucket loads. I imagine she probably didn't always inside, but the impression she gave was of total self-insurance. So if someone turns up, they have a plan, they're decisive, they're competent, they're self-assured, and they can, as she could, they called her the Madonna of the Mountains because she could work miracles, she seemed to be able to summon up great Bombers coming over, dropping guns and ammunition and explosives and money and vitamins and food and shoes and uniforms. It seemed almost at will. Of course, it wasn't at will. Well, I mean, that's going to go a long way. And it made her into this figure. There are parts of France, the Haute-Loire in particular, today where she is an absolute legend.
0: Well, Sonia, I want to thank you so very much for spending a little bit of your free time here in Memphis with us. It has been a pleasure and a delight speaking with you.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me on.
0: Sonia Purnell is the author of A Woman of No Importance, the untold story of the American spy who helped win World War II, which is now available in paperback from Penguin. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WIPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at booktalk.com care of WIPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work. But there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.